one of the core differences that sort of sets Buddhism, the Dharma, apart, uh, the Buddha's insights was the teaching of anatta, which is the very profound proposition the Buddha made some 2,500 years ago, that if you observe your feelings, your body, your perceptions, your thoughts, your consciousness, if you observe what's going on that makes up your experience, you will not find anything that could possibly present a stable, lasting inner identity yourself. Which is not to say that at this moment you don't have a self. Of course you do. We all have selves at any given time. And in fact, we have personality traits, but we don't have anything that is static, lasting, frozen, unchanging. This is, um, when the Buddha says, you know, if you look really closely over time, you'll see that not only do body feelings, uh, perceptions change, but if you observe your thoughts, sometimes they'll spiral out of control and they'll lead you in directions that are completely outside of your control. So there's nothing really in there that is a little inner me guiding and making all the decisions. Uh, there's uh, To have a human birth means that you're going to inherit a body with its own needs, emotions that are largely acting on unconscious impulses as our feelings, and that even our thoughts are very often not within our control. If you think of it in terms of what we know about uh, evolution, it would make no sense for us to have a static, unchanging inner self because we are constantly in radically different situations. Just today, you probably went on the New York City subway system or you walked around the street where you were surrounded by complete strangers that you didn't know. But then you might have gone to a workplace or to a place where people that you did know and engaged in whatever it is you do for a living or do for you did today. And those different contexts require completely different actions, completely different states of vigilance, completely different states of awareness. If you had one single frozen state you would only be good for one context in your life. But in fact, most of us quite effortlessly change the way we think and act when we're around friends, then we act when we're at work, then we act when we're surrounded by complete and utter strangers. Uh, it wasn't, eerily enough though, it wasn't until 1738 that a Western philosopher named David Hume in his Treatise on Human Nature came to the same realization he said human beings are made up of what he called bundles and that they're all changing and if you look at any of them for any period of time they just don't present a lasting stable self. One of the reasons the Buddha brought this up is that many of us spend a lot of time trying to find something called a true self, always there, always present, giving us a kind of consistent identity, something that we can rely on, something that is more me than all the other experiences, something that is generating all my actions and my thoughts. So we want there to be a self, and largely the reason is, well, not largely, completely the reason is, is because part of the brain, the left hemisphere, tends to like to reduce life into categories and beliefs and static concepts, and so the idea of there being a inner self that's consistent is deeply resonant for our left hemisphere, what neuroscientists call the interpreter. It helps us 
make plans and make sense of the world around us, it would make things much easier for us if there was a constant, lasting, identifiable, reliable inner self. We now can show definitively that that's not the case from neuroplasticity, the fact that the brain is constantly rewiring itself, constantly dendrites and axonic connections are and the synaptic space between those are dying off all the time in the hundreds of millions and we're constantly rewiring new neural connections. Uh, Plus, when you do brain scans of fMRIs and you ask people to think about themselves, it turns out they use three completely different regions of the brain, somewhat chaotically. Sometimes they'll use what's known as the temporal parietal, which is when you think about yourself, you think about your body and the way your body feels, your embodied self. But sometimes you think about the groups and collectives and the friends and the tribes and the families and the, the people that you know and how, and how you're connected. And that's the medial prefrontal and anterior cingulate part of the brain. But then sometimes you just think about the things that differentiate you, make you unique and special and feel like an outsider. And that's the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And you're never using all three. In fact, you're using them all at different times. So when you think about yourself, you're never thinking about yourself in the same way anyway. You're using three different parts of your brain, sometimes in tandem, very often isolated. On top of that, the great neurologist Benjamin Lebet showed that thought arises a half second after impulses. And the vast majority of our experience, our actions, our impulses, our emotions are driven by something very different than our thinking mind. The reason why we think that we control our actions and think that we control our impulses is simply because the left hemisphere doesn't become aware of the impulses until the same time that it thinks the thoughts. It's the slowest part of the brain. It has the slow circuits. So you experience your actions and impulses at the same time you have your thoughts, but guess what? They've already been around for a half second. So duh, you didn't come up with them. <laughs> the only thing that your thinking does is it overrides really, really bad ideas before you fully act them out. While it takes about 0.4 seconds for you to realize an impulse, or 0.5 seconds, it takes a little longer for you to move your hand and punch that other person in the face. So thought has just enough of a role that it can stop a bad idea, but it can't give you any new ones. That means that you don't have free will, you do have free won't. Now, on top of that, Morse and Gergen in their landmark study in 1970 shows that the way we think about ourselves and identify ourselves changes depending upon the context. If you're in a room for a job interview and they place somebody who's extremely well-dressed, looks like a model, has all their shit together, and is looking really on top of it, and then they give you an interview and ask you to describe yourself, you'll largely say really 
negative, disparaging, or you'll essentially cut yourself down to size in the study they found. But if they sit, you next to somebody who looks disheveled, nervous, like they don't have their shit together, somebody who looks like they're really falling apart, and then they ask you to describe yourself, you'll likely say very positive things. It turns out that the ventral medial part of the brain that describes self is really, really interested into how we compare with the people around us at any given time. That determines how we think about ourselves. That's why some people find it really discouraging to find out that old friends have done really well in the world, have gotten married. So, given all that, it, a lot of Buddhist teachers just stop right there because that's actually pretty easy to go over. But then, guess what? It's not that simple. Because, while the Buddha said there is no lasting core identity that's reliable, he does say that you need to have a self. You do have to have a sense of who you are. You would not be able to function in the world. Suppose one day you got out of bed and the roommate asks you if you bought the milk, and you say, well, I'm not the same person you spoke with yesterday. I am, I don't have a self. I am a fluid changing array of emotions and feelings and thoughts, and you should have known that. They would probably lose patience with you. Plus, to function in the world, if people ask you to help with a project and you claim that you have no lasting identity, that might make people that you work with struggle and think differently about you. So on, mon on a mundane level, day-to-day -day life, we do have to have a sense of identity. And in fact, it's very, very useful psychologically to have a sense of who we are, what we're capable of, what our interpersonal needs are in relationships, what we need from peers, when we can thrive independently, and when we need to ask for support. Everybody has different degrees of capabilities alone. Other people have, we all have different things that we can handle alone and things that we can't. I can handle certain crises alone, but other things I completely turn into a mess. To wit, every year around this time when it comes time to do taxes and I'm asked to find receipts and put things in forms, I regress to approximately age seven where I want nothing other than to be rescued by the adults of the world. And thankfully, because of that, I found a accountant who's very sympathetic to poor Buddhist teacher who has kept his prices down and who does my taxes for me because were it not for that fact and the ability to know when I am utterly flummoxed on my own, I would be in the crap. I don't know what I would be. I would be not in a good situation because I... I'm just terrible with it. I, I, I don't, I'm just literally, for some reason, it brings up the easily flustered part of me. So we all have to have a sense of what our capabilities are, a sense of when, which situations we need to get, we need to have emotion co-regulation by talking with other people. We need to be able to reach out for help. And other times we can feel self-confident. 
And that's what having a sense of self, a sense of uh, an overview of what our capabilities are, what our strengths, weaknesses, what we are, um, uh, what we need in relationships is another great example of where we need to have a sense of self. Everybody has different needs for connection, and everybody has different needs for space in relationship, and it might even change, but we all have to have a sense vaguely of what that is, because if you try to get in a relationship with someone and you can't state what your needs are, guess what? You're fucked. You're not going to be in that relationship for very long because you'll be hinting or hoping that they can guess what your needs are, and that, in my experience, and my work is one-on-one with people, uh, that rarely works. So, people who have a fragmented, poor sense of self, very often due to early trauma, uh, do very, very poorly regulating impulses. They tend to be prone to self-sabotaging behaviors, and they have a remarkable lack of resilience in life. If you don't know what your capabilities, strengths, if you don't have a sense of self-empowerment, a sense of self-efficacy, then you will essentially, the moment you hit a setback in life, when people start acting in ways you're un- that are frustrating or where you feel wounded, you won't be able to bounce back. You won't have a sense of empowerment, a sense of deserving love, a sense of outrage on your own behalf. You won't be able to set boundaries if you don't have a self. So. The issue is, on the one hand, we have to let go of that idea of the static, concretized, frozen self, but at the same time, we do have to have a sense of who we are, what we're capable of, what our needs are. Fortunately, there's a lot of space in between those two. They're not mutually exclusive. You can actually meet those needs. So. Let's talk about that. When people search for self, there are certain things that they do that are skillful and certain things that they do that are unskillful or unhelpful. I'll talk about the unhelpful first because, hey, I'm a Jew. I was born in the Upper West Side, and that's the way my parents taught me to do things. Always bring the bad news first. (laughs) So, uh, self-realization. Self-realization is the underlying spiritual assertion that hidden beneath individual traits and personality that there is some transcendent, transpersonal identity that unifies us all, a kind of cosmic self. This is one of the beliefs in yoga and in Brahman and Hindu traditions that they have a belief that Uh, there was essentially a Brahmin god that essentially decided to play hide-and-seek, split himself into uh, all the different beings, all the different living entities in the world. And when people say namaste, they are bowing to that inner light, that inner presence of the divine that's believed to be in everyone. The Buddha did not agree with this transcendent self. He said, with people who believed in a cosmic transpersonal identity, he tended to find that they would invariably grieve and become 
tormented when they encountered their own death. That even though they wanted to believe that there was something in them that would transcend death, that when it really, when push came to shove, they would really fall apart when it came to facing the fact of their own death. That they really actually did believe deep down inside that there was something about them that was special and different and unique. Now, I'm not saying that you have to let go of that belief. It's totally fine if you want to believe that all beings have within them a kind of intrapersonal, transcendent, transpersonal, transhistorical uh, life force that unites all beings. That's fine. But when it comes to having a sense of self, that's not useful. Because when it comes to being resilient, bouncing back from setbacks, feeling empowered, feeling that you have a right to set boundaries with lovers, roommates, family members, if you're relying on a transpersonal cosmic self, that's not going to be enough. That's not going to be enough to say, well, you're stepping on the rights of my transpersonal cosmic entity that's in me and in all beings. Most people won't feel that that's enough to make them resilient and stand up for themselves and believe that they deserve love and care. So believe that, that's fine, but to build up that sense of resilience, that sense of self-efficacy, that sense of self-deserving, we need to connect with something in addition to that. Now there's self-consciousness, which is the unpleasant state triggered in social situations where we judge and evaluate ourselves, where we compare ourselves to others, and generally when we come up short. Self-consciousness is that inner voice that when you're in a party and you try to say something funny and nobody laughs goes, what the fuck is the matter with you? Why did, I told you not to say anything, just stay in there. You go, oh yeah, you're right. That'll teach me. <laughs> and you tried to you tried to go be in a relationship and you tried to get a, you know write a book and that didn't turn out you know, that's the self-conscious voice that's not what we're looking for either <laughs> we're not looking for a sense of self that compares evaluates judges us contrasts us uh, you know with what we believe the normative is the third thing we don't want to do is self-concept. Self-concept is the collection of reports when we're asked to describe ourselves at a dinner party. Tell me about yourself when you're freshly dating and you're introduced to your companion's parents and they go, oh, tell me about yourself. And you list things like your academic performance, your skills, your employment, your psychiatric diagnosis, if you're neurotic. <laughs> you might list your views, your opinions, your political beliefs. Everything that you can report about yourself consciously and write out is your self-concept. That is an extremely diminished version of who you are. Because what you are is far more than the categorical uh, things that you do amongst other people and the skill sets that you amass. You have feelings, emotions, sensations, perceptions, an entire wide array of experience that cannot be reported to other human beings. 
You are not your resume. If you thought you were, I hope you know by now that you're not. So self-concept is the way we describe ourselves to other people, and that is not ourself. In fact, when we report ourselves to other people, we generally um, leave out some extremely important experiences, traumas, events, childhood family systems, all the stuff that makes us who we are, we leave out. And we don't really then present ourselves as we are. So all that stuff is not self. What is self? All right. Well, what we're aiming for is self-awareness. Self-awareness is a non-conceptual, non-judgmental, ongoing awareness of your internal experience. It is not ever static or frozen. It never compares itself with another human being. It is simply a sense of at every given moment how much stress, fear, happiness, anxiety, what is going on internally, you get to know. And you start to then use all of the messages that the emotional circuits of your mind are sending you through your body, through your breath, through your feeling states in your shoulders, your belly, your throat, your face. You get to know the entirety of your experience and you use it to make informed decisions about what you're capable of, when you need help, when you feel confident, when you feel alone. We start honoring our actual experience rather than relying on shoulds, the stories about what we tell ourselves we should be capable of. We put that aside and we instead embrace the actuality of what our body is telling us. So there's times in life when I get emails offering me opportunities to talk, but before I say yes, because my conceptual inner mind that says I'm a Buddhist teacher, I should talk whenever I don't have a conflict, but I have to feel into my body at that moment and see what the breath, what my stomach, what my throat, what my, the mind, is it jumpy, is it settled, what the right hemispheric neural circuits are trying to let me know. I read what the Buddha calls the four foundations so that I'm not making decisions based on, upon what I believe human beings should do, what I believe they should be capable of. I make my decisions about based on what I am capable of, what I can do, what I at that moment feel is worthwhile or not. So when we expand our sense of self to not be frozen around just our thoughts, but we open it up into the entirety of our felt experience magically, and I'm not talking hypothetically, I'm talking about actual experience in counseling. What I see is a lot of the defense mechanisms that are self-sabotaging for people magically begin to fall away the moment they start becoming aware of their full entire experience. Certain things that we do when we become too caught up in our self-concept, the things we believe we should be rather than the way we actually feel, is we compartmentalize. The parts of ourselves, the behaviors, the impulses we don't like, we shun and we push into a little corner that we disavow. So people will binge eat frantically 
because they don't want to acknowledge that they have loneliness in their lives and that they're addressing it through binge eating. Some people will frantically engage in sexual behaviors or shopping or other kinds of behaviors that they disavow because they don't want to acknowledge that part of themselves. When we open and claim the entirety of our experience, then we can begin to report it to trustworthy people. We can begin to see and investigate the behaviors and impulses that, are, that we're struggling with. We can begin to address and begin to feel what is beneath those impulses. We can begin to develop a whole new way of relating to the parts of ourselves that we don't like when we include it into our sense of who we are rather than believe that that's something that we cannot acknowledge. That's something that we must be ashamed of. People also engage in what's called reaction formation. When they have disavowed emotions or feelings that are inconvenient, then they pretend to experience the exact opposite. Some people are really, really upset with people they work with, but when they're around that person, they suddenly find themselves being extra nice, even though they really can't stand their roommate, their boss, they're a member of their family at that moment. They can't say, okay, right now I'm feeling really uncomfortable, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm not that happy with what you're asking me to do, I'm feeling angry. Instead of being able to do that, they completely sell themselves out immediately, almost with uh, the fast circuits of the brain. They start essentially creating a false self where they pretend to be happy or love the, the people that they're actually struggling with. Displacement is when we have a feeling or an emotional state that we disavow and we act it out on other people that have nothing to do with that anger or sadness. Intellectualization is when we try to address all of our fears and emotions and sadness through figuring it out. Some people try to figure out why they're angry, try to figure out why they're sad, try to come up with a story that can make all the feelings go away. And that's because we haven't embraced as part of ourself, part of our experience, all those emotions, all those states. So we're trying to build acceptance and tolerance for all the different parts of ourselves, to embrace the loneliness, the addictions, the struggles, the fears, the anxieties. And that doesn't mean that we want them to stay as strong as they are, or as compelling as they are, but ironically, it's only when we begin to embrace, turn towards, acknowledge parts of ourselves that we begin to find that they begin to diminish in strength and force. There's a whole book on the subject by the great psychologist Dan Wegner. So, um, really, the goal is to let go of the idea that self is something we have to figure out by thinking a lot, by reflecting, by putting together an inner story or narrative of our life. And it's about letting go of that over-reliance on the storytelling part of the mind and opening up self 
and a sense of capabilities and what we are, who we are, by feeling into our bodies, our becoming aware of our emotional states, our moods, on an ongoing basis. Self-awareness, as my conclusion, leads to self-actualization. When we become aware of what our needs are, and when we embrace those needs, whether it's for love, connection at any given moment, whether it's for uh, independence, whether it's for uh, whatever it is, once we meet those needs and we uh, address them, then we can set about expressing ourselves creatively. We can achieve finally, or set about achieving inner peace, we can act on altruistic desires, we can actually uh, turn towards the challenges and struggles that we need to address in life. But all of that, according to Abraham Maslow, the great uh, 20th century psychologist who talked about self-actualization, he noted that that pyramid of actualization requires that we know what our needs are, we become aware of them, and we embrace them and um, meet them on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So 